Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. These bonus episodes just keep on coming for you here on the Attacking Scrum and uh, I'm delighted to bring you another one. This is a chat we had with Rob Kitson either last week or the week before. I think it was just before the quarterfinals actually. So you'll probably be familiar with Rob's writing as the rugby correspondent for The Guardian and uh, he's written a new book called uh, Around the World in 18 Minutes which is a trawl through uh, some brilliant rugby stories from uh, from across the world some of which you'll know some of which you won't and uh, yeah I actually at the time I'd only read parts of it at the time uh, when we interviewed it I've subsequently read the whole thing and it's uh, yeah really good fun and strikes a great balance between uh, some really nice memories of the past but not kind of getting stuck into uh, you know things were better in the good old days so yeah a really nice examination of rugby and kind of what it means to be a rugby fan so I really enjoyed having a chat with Rob and talking through yeah some of these some of these fantastic memories uh, what did we talk about so uh, we talk about that try in uh, in Cardiff Gareth Edwards for the Barbarians and what made that so special and uh, that kind of was a a real kind of catalyst for for Rob's love of rugby, so uh, that was a really good starting point. We always talk about things like Clive Woodward and his uh, his innovation and stuff, and uh, you know we like to take the Mickey out of Sir Clive a bit every now and again. But it was quite interesting to get to grips with that and and really kind of talk about the impact that he had as a, as a Northern Hemisphere coach. So that was really interesting. And we finished uh, talking about um, Eddie Butler as well, who you know obviously someone that be hugely familiar with as a broadcaster lots of you will remember him as a player as well um, and uh, he's someone who Rob worked with at the Guardian for a very long time so we had a chat about uh, a chat about Eddie as well so hopefully this will enjoy, enjoy this one uh, it'd be a good warm-up for for the Rugby World Cup final that is uh, just uh, just a 
two day uh, two days one day away one day away now by the time this goes out so yeah giving you uh, and if you listen to this further on in the future um it will still all be completely relevant so yes hopefully uh, you'll really enjoy this one and if you feel compelled to go out and buy rob's book it is called around the world in 80 minutes and i'm sure you'll love it right thanks for listening on with the show He can shave whichever part of his body he wants. Welcome to another special episode of the Attacking Scrum podcast. Uh, we've been getting to grips with plenty of books lately, and uh, we thought we'd we'd keep that up because there are. Uh, a whole host of brilliant books around at the moment and who better to join us and have a chat about his new uh, his new book around the world in 18 minutes it's the guardian rugby correspondent rob kitson rob welcome uh, firstly are you, are you surviving the rugby world cup <laughs> well it's very tough we're very tough we're in week seven um so clinging clinging onto the fuselage i think you'd say at this point but uh yeah, obviously missing Wales, um, who, who bowed out um, at, the, at the weekend. But yeah, no, it's been it, it, you know it's always a pleasure to come to, to to a World Cup. You have to do a little bit of work here and there, but uh, no, uh, very lucky to be here. Yeah, and you've covered so you've covered everyone since ninety one. Am I right in, in saying that? Yeah, I know, I know. I, my Zimmer frames just had a shot. It's fine. <laughs> and uh, I, I mean, I suppose we're, we're going to get into this uh, in a moment, but. Aside from the rugby, I mean, how is the how has all the the circus around the the Rugby World Cup changed in that time? It must be it must be so different since that that tournament in the British Isles. Funny, funnily enough, I've just been asked to, uh, today to write a piece for the Guardian about you know e- England's sort of they've been in five semi finals and it suddenly dawned on me with a sort of horror horror that I've seen them all mm-hmm. and I thought oh my goodness and so suddenly you think back to ninety one which was sort of spread all over wasn't it they they had games. You know, Pontypridd and Lanethley and, and, and up, up in Scotland and down in Agen and Bayonne and obviously England. It, it was all over the shop. I remember going to Otley to see um, there were people hanging from trees to watch Italy um, play up at Otley against the USA. And and so you go from hanging in trees in, in a small Yorkshire town to what we had at you know, the weekend in Paris and 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 the whole world sort of hanging on every uh, every ruck if you like um and and yeah it, it, it's changed massively i think the, the rugby's changed clearly uh the event i think it's got more serious i don't know i don't know mm. whether i don't know i think the fans are still enjoying it i really hope they're still enjoying it i think maybe one or two i don't know if they come back with tales of quite a lot of security and you know maybe bottles of water being confiscated a lot of lot of uh, security people with machine guns wandering around the stadiums but i guess that's all part of you know that's that's part of a big sporting event these days i i, I would say it's bigger is it better in every respect mm, jury's out depending where you're sitting i think and that's i suppose that that comes on to something that you mentioned in the book and it's a bit of a theme that that will run throughout it and you mentioned kind of nostalgia right at the start of the book and I was going to ask is it was it hard to kind of steer clear of that misty-eyed nostalgia as you refer to it or actually are you quite happy to to indulge in that for this book? I think the the idea was I, I idea if you want to call it that but the conceit was that 1973 was the when I got into rugby, I was I was the classic age, you know. Gareth Edwards goes over in the corner uh, for the Barbarians, nineteen seventy three, and it's fifty years now to two thousand and twenty three, the biggest World Cup has ever been. So, it just felt to me it was maybe time to 
opportunity maybe to put the foot in the ball and just just sort of talk to the people who made a bit of a difference between the then the men and the women the the games the teams the just just things that have that have stood out over those 50 years and so I mean, yes, there's a bit of nostalgia, if you like to call anything. It's a bit like calling anything in history nostalgia, isn't it? Mm. You, you either call it important history or you call it nostalgia if you're looking back with it a bit, maybe a bit too fondly. I, I, I try to resist the, oh, my gosh, wasn't it brilliant 50 years ago and isn't it you know, less good now? You know, that's, that's not clearly the way to go, particularly when you see the quality of some of the games of this World Cup. Equally, I think... Uh, it's quite. It's been quite interesting actually since the book comes out has come out, and it, it, it's amazing how you know you, you suddenly think, well, gosh, people didn't see Phil Bennett play or or, or David Duckham or or they weren't lucky enough to to go to I don't know um, to see well anything in the amateur era, I guess. Uh, and and it doesn't make me as I say, I'm I'm <clears throat> clearly not as not as young as I as I should be, but I, I don't feel 108 really, uh, and so I think it's important to try and reflect that and and to. I don't know, a bit of a balance. I think, I think what do they call it? A balanced meal. So some of the older stuff, traditional stuff on one side of the plate and a, a few sort of, uh, you know, uh, nouvelle cuisine on the other. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it really is interesting, like you say, that that kind of balancing out. But let's start with, with 1973, uh, a fantastic Welsh connection and, you know, that try as we always refer to it. Um, what's interesting with that? What is it that makes it so special and why has it stood the test of time? Because universally, people of all ages still kind of refer to it as the, as the greatest try of all time. But what, what is it that makes it so special? Well, I think there's an element of, of, you know, if you were lucky enough to say to be there at the time, it was, it was <laughs> we, as I said, the first game of rugby we'd ever seen. We hadn't, hadn't long had, um, you know, a colour TV and there it was in all its glory. So there was a, there was a slight novelty to it. I think... I think if you if you boil it down to to why we we're still so addicted to it, I think there there weren't many camera angles, and so you almost got it in wide shot. You got the whole thing, the momentum of the thing. I think I think you know what makes it clearly is Gareth coming onto it like a steam train at the end, you know, and that you could see the defender should have him, shouldn't he? And then he and he can't get him because he's going so quick, and the and the dive at the end. And I defy anybody whose hairs not to go up on the back of your neck. You know when he when he goes over at the end. So I think great sports like that, though, isn't it? You know, if you see Muhammad Ali throw a punch, or some of those old Grand Nationals, or whatever sport, some of those Wimbledon finals, whatever sport that that really gets you, I I think there's classic moments on there, and and that's definitely one. Yeah, definitely. And I'm very much of that. My dad was there actually on that day. And uh, I remember him telling me he didn't remember. He smuggled a he smuggled a very cheap bottle of wine in his pocket. So he said he didn't remember a great deal about it. But it's one of those moments that lived over and over again, as you say, right at the start of that golden era of, of televised sport. And to me, that that it adds to the occasion as well. You know, you've got that commentary that's so iconic with it. And it feels like the the broadcast, the the Cliff Morgan commentary and all of that is, I guess, as important in, in distilling the moment as you're distilling it down into such a significant moment. I think there's a rarity value about some of some of that now. There's there's so much sport now. You can turn the telly on. You've got it all there, haven't you? From from all around the world, and you don't know who the commentator is, and and probably he's doing it off the tube somewhere. And 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 there, there's. I think I think less is more is is, mm. is an interesting debate to be had in sport. And I think in certainly in case of rugby back then, it, it was less is more. You didn't see the All Blacks. That's why they were special. You'd, you'd never seen the Harker. You know, that, that was why it was. Oh my goodness, what what, what are they doing? You know, they were they were. It was a big deal for them to come on tour, and I th- and I think 
yeah, clearly, as I say, without going down the the nostalgic route um, too far, it certainly left a big impression and I think a lasting impression. And the fact that we're still talking about it 50 years on shows that those players must have been handy. I mean, as I say, Phil Bennett was probably one of my early heroes. You know, I'd be in the back garden going, you know, we had a little sort of deflated plastic rugby ball that I thought I could spiral into touch, you know, and and, and uh, with my wellies on. Uh, and, and, you know, and just sort of like give a little hop like he did at the end. And, and it was... Yeah, and that's I, I still think that's how people get into sport. Yes, they were, yes, it's important to play it and have feel that ball in your hand. But I think until you see it, and you know, either on the telly or, or ideally live, until you see, you know, your imagination can't comprehend it otherwise, can it? Um, so no, yeah. I, I think certainly for me, those guys, Scotland as well. I, I, there's a chapter in the book about Scotland um, who who, uh, who played a sort of different rugby to you know England were terrible in the seventies, as we all know, you know, and and Scotland. Um, Wales and, and actually Ireland as well, were, uh, and France later on, were all much better. And therefore, I think I, I, I grew up in a sort of rural area, long way from big cities, what have you. So, so again, we we never <laughs> there, was, there wasn't a rugby club. Nobody I knew played rugby. So it was a it, it, yeah. I, I think it was certainly a formative experience. Or uh, um, what's the word? When I was looking for heroes, they all happened to have studs and played with the oval balls. Yeah, and one of the heroes who featured during that day, and in fact the the um, the title of of that first chapter is is named after David Duckham, famously referred to by Welsh fans as Die Duckham. I was going to get your take on this. How good do you have to be for an Englishman to to win over a uh, to win over a, a you know a whole sector of, of Welsh crowd like that? Well, he was a lovely man. He's sadly, you know, sadly no longer with us, and I, I, I count it as a, you know, great privilege to have gone up to, to go and to see him in his sort of, you know, latter years. And and he was, he was just charming and and fun and 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 happy to chat. And and yeah, I, th- I think he he went on that nineteen seventy one Lions tour, and and they got on really well. And and he would say, and and others have, have, have said, you know, that the standard of the rugby they played, he says, he, he said it would still stand the test of time in terms of the passing, in terms of the, the you know, the Mike Gibson and Barry John on the Lions tour, you know, all the, all those, there the, were some fantastic players. And it's, it, I, again, it's funny, isn't it? Nostalgia or looking back and uh, rose, rose tinted spectacles and all the rest of it is, is, is a danger, but I think they were great players. Uh, history tells us they were great players, what they achieved. And, and actually, I think that's why some of those videos do stand up. Possibly just as well you don't get the full game with them all, you know, sort of bogged yeah. down in the mud and, you know, uh, what have you. But but considering the surfaces they were playing on, considering the ball they were playing with, um, I, I think they'd have, as athletes, if they, you know, if they'd been a bit fitter these days, they'd have, they'd have stood up very well. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, you, you, it's so hard to compare eras, isn't it? The What you can compare is the impact, you know, the impact of a, of a Lions win in South Africa or the impact that someone like David Duckham had in terms of entertainment. And I think that's the that's the best way of, of judging it, because, of course, things are all, you know, even from 10, 20 years ago, the game has moved on, has moved on drastically and, you know, presumably will will continue to do so. Um, Let's talk about 20 years ago now, though, because, again, one of the chapters you you speak to Clive Woodward and uh, very interestingly, he refers to England as winning despite their system, not because of it. Um, so I wanted to get your take on that sense of style and kind of national identity when it when it comes to rugby. Are those things as strong as they as they used to be? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I, I think. Clive would probably say he didn't have an English style. He would probably say he had a winning style. You know, he mm. was he, he was trying to change. I think what he was talking about was trying to change the sort of 
conservative with a small c, traditional, call it what you want. He was just trying to modernise what he saw as the sort of dinosaur, sort of stuck in the mud type English mindset as much as anything else. And so, yeah, he had, you know, he had, like all of us, he had good ideas, he had bad ideas, possibly, um, and, and, and some of them get sieved out and, and some of them really worked. And I think I think I think I probably say in the book, you know, there's, there were there are many chefs who, who put together that England World Cup win. But I think I think without Woodward, without his desire to innovate, without uh, his input to sort of make people aim that little bit higher, I don't think they would have won the World Cup. They had a, they had a of course they had a fantastic side. You know, there's there's the argument that you know any old any any old Joe Joe Blow could have um, could have been in charge and they'd still have won. I, I don't subscribe to that actually because I think it took them. As I say, he took over in '97. They didn't win it tonight till 2003. So it took six years of, of hard graft. I was lucky enough to be sort of you know loitering around while it was happening. And and uh, yeah, they, they, it was a remarkable phase. And I think you know equally remarkably, as I say, talking about the system and it's opposite in in England now. It's the same in Wales. You know, if you look over at Ireland, they got their system right. And yes, they got knocked out at the weekend. Yes, France got knocked out um, at the weekend as well. But I. I think you'll find that longer term, I reckon both those sides will be back. Um, and, and if you want sustained success, it does have to start at home, I think. Yeah, no, like, I absolutely agree with that. And I think the interesting point that you make there is, you know, for, for those innovations that that didn't go so well for, for Clive, and I think a lot of them really kind of came on the, on the 2005 Lions Tour where, you know, a lot had happened post winning the World Cup and, uh, you know, lots of things changed. But... He was a very innovative coach, you know, before that and was very keen to learn from other sports as well, wasn't he? And and, and learn what other sports and other parts of the world could could bring to, to his own coaching philosophy. Yeah, I, I remember he told us a story about a um a, a dentist from Brisbane who who uh it was really unhappy and it was all going wrong and he decided he was gonna throw himself off the bridge in, in Brisbane and he thought, Do you know what? I'm not so he sort of stepped back from the edge went back to his surgery, scrubbed off all the names of the people he didn't like from his from his list uh, and kept only the, the patients that he liked. And he wrote a book called The Happiness-Centered Centered Business. Uh, and Clive went to see him. And then he became the most successful dentist in Australia based on surrounding yourself with people who just make you feel good or, you know, <laughs> sort of life-enhancing people. And, and I, I, I thought that was interesting. And Clive certainly took that lesson. There were lots of other examples I could give you of of, of, of him going outside the outside the tram lines, if you like, to go and just hear about it. It's quite commonplace now. You know, you hear about all these coaches. Oh, yes, I went and interviewed a rocket scientist, scientist mm. from NASA or I did this or I did that. And it's, it's almost got a little bit sort of bizarre. But I think Clive was certainly in the, in the, in the vanguard of that. And, uh, yeah, I think it, it certainly worked, I think, in his case. Yeah, it did. It did to a point. I think come two thousand and five, some of those some of those dental patients might actually be uh, might actually be on tour. The squad was so think, big, but I think two thousand and five. And the only thing I'd say about that is that I'm not remotely um, defending what was a clearly they got well beaten, but at that New Zealand side was absolutely sensational. And I don't know. I think if they got the, you know, even if you had the best Lions side and possibly the greatest coach in history of the world, I'm not still not sure they'd have beaten New Zealand. But there we go. No, I think you're right. To be honest, I think you're right to say that. And it is, you know, again, talking of comparing eras, that was a side that blew away pretty much everyone in in front of them. I think it was just the the manner of the defeat, wasn't it? That that probably that probably stung so much. And then those 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 things, you know, those those innovations, the big dossiers and things like that, look a lot more, you know, look a lot more um, questionable <laughs> in, in the wake in the wake of the result. But none, nonetheless, um, yeah, as you say, there, there were some some good innovations 
in in the uh, in the two thousand and three um, vintage anyway. Uh, obviously, along the way, you've, you've you know you've witnessed many great moments. Some of them as a fan, some of them as a writer. When you were writing the book, did that kind of make you reassess any of the the moments you'd experienced beforehand? Um, well, you have to do a bit of sieving, you know. As I say, these <clears throat> the books, it's as much about what you leave out sometimes as what you as what you put in. I, as I say, I didn't have a hard and fast rule, but I just wanted, um, and it's not by any means a definitive list. I should make that clear. It, uh, I, I wanted to, as I say, just shine a shine a light on on people who had made a difference at the time. So you know, some of the great women's pioneers um, back in the day, both in both in Wales, and I spoke to Lisa Burgess from. In, in Wales and um, Jill Burns in England, you know, about what it was like in those early days when nobody was taking you seriously and they, you, you were barely allowed to play rugby as a woman, you know. And, it, and it's, you know, again, people don't really know those stories. They sort of know they're out there and what have you, and they've been had a little bit more publicity lately. But I think it was really important to shine a light on that. Um, so, yeah, and then and then you, then you off you go. And, I, I mean, we mentioned the Lions. So, you know, I managed to, very lucky, got an interesting chapter about the Lions. I spoke to Lawrence Delalio, who's, chest practically you know he's clutching the badge he's the biggest he says the great alliance he said every time i went to alliance to it changed improved me as a person as a human being all this it was just the greatest thing ever then i then i spoke to austin healy who said it was he said they should scrap it immediately it's an outdated concept um you know for, for all it's got too corporate too commercial it's gone too far away from you know what its roots were uh and and it's you know there, there's, there's quite an interesting debate to be had there so as i say i, want, I didn't want the book to be a as I say, just a hagiography or a, just a list of, of great games. I wanted to, to sort of reflect some of the issues that are out there as well. Yeah, I'd like to drill down on that a bit more, actually, because obviously, you know, as we've said, looking back over that period of time, lots of things have changed and rugby's only been professional for 30 years. So, yeah, there there is going to be this big difference between the amateur and the professional era. Do you think there are elements of the amateur game that perhaps have been neglected that, that could come back and, and be translated into the modern day, not in a romantic sense, but also in something that could that could thrive in a, com- a commercial environment. Well, I think there's a. I think I think the Lions are quite a good example because you know they go on tour, don't they? And they've ne- some of them have never met, and they've got to beat some of the best sides out there. And and do you know what? It, it works if you've got a coach and a management who go. Well, I tell you what, we're going to do first of all, lads. We're going to go into the pub and we're going to have a few beers and we're going to bond and we're going to do you know we're just going to get to know each other and then we're going to work out why we care about this thing and then we're off we go and so i think i think you probably have to have a little look at this world cup you know the the the, some of the difference that coaches were able to make in a short period of time you know warren coming back and made a big difference in wales um in fiji simon rawalui only took over in february and you see how well they played uh steve borthwick as well it's a slightly different um sort of scenario but uh, they, they they it is possible i think to do quite a lot in a short period of time so i think the idea that's peddled by certain people that oh you can't have any fun for four years and you've just got to sort mm. of sit there and and, and 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 be very serious and spend a lot of time in the gym i'm not sure of course you of course we all again it comes back to balance doesn't it you if you spend your whole time in the gym and you have no fun i don't think it'll make you a better rugby player in the end and I think that's possibly a lesson that, you know, in the, in the amateur era, they didn't spend any time in the gym, did they? Uh, and they spent a lot of time in the pub. And so possibly you, may, you might need to um, re- <laughs> recalibrate that slightly. But uh, you know what I'm saying? You've got to have a bit of fun. If, it's, if, it, if you're not enjoying yourself, you're not going to play well. Yeah, it, it's really interesting because from a, like a fan perspective as well, I was quite intrigued to see some of those random fixtures that cropped up last year as a result of um, 
you know the the bankruptcies in the English Premiership. Premiership. So you had these random fixtures of the Barbarians playing Bristol and Harlequins, and they seem to be really well attended. And it just kind of makes you think that you know you don't have to copy the playbook of football and just try and get bigger and bigger and bigger. There are some of these lovely nuances and idiosyncrasies from rugby's past that actually could be could be quite interesting. You know, I, I don't think it's just kind of um, ale-swilling 60-year-olds going to watch those games. I think it is something that that's a bit unique to go, oh, hang on a minute, you've got, you know, what's essentially kind of like a, an all-star side that's thrown together um, playing against the club side. I think, I think I'd like to think there's a way of those things being embraced rather than just more and more rugby. I, I think there's a, a really interesting debate to be had about how you project rugby and, and promote it. And, and it's about characters in the end. I, am I, one of the big things in the book, it's about rugby in the end. It's about hu- the people who play it. It's about the human beings and the, their emotions and how they feel and, and what, they're, you know, what they're doing, who they're doing it for, can, the communities for what they're representing, all that, all that stuff. It, you know, France is a great example, you know, the, the local, local towns and cities. It's, it, it's so strong, Wales as well, as, of course. Um, and so I, if, if rugby isn't careful, in my opinion, you, you, it's very easy, isn't it, to have your in-house TV channel and you put a couple of players on and so they've got an in-joke that they're laughing on the camera and, and maybe you get a 30-second clip or something and you go, oh, go well, they, that looks sort of fine, but, that you know, I don't really, you don't really get any closer to, to sort of feeling part of it, if you see what I mean. Um, whereas I, I, I do think it's important that these guys... Um, I think they well exactly what you're saying. You've got to get people into the ground in the first place. You've, you've then got it all watching on TV, and that's why World Cups are so important. I think they've had the viewing figures out for last weekend. I think they're really, you know, I think they're really healthy. They're best for twenty years, apparently, for the quarterfinals. You know, so there there is an audience out there. They're curious about rugby. They're not not everybody wants to watch football morning, noon, and night. Hmm. Um, so I think to some extent you've got to be positive and say, look, rugby's got rugby. We're very good at gazing at our navels, aren't we? Sometimes and going, oh, we could improve this, or we could mm. improve that. I think this comes a point. It might be coming now, with with some of the clubs obviously not doing so well financially. That actually, you've got to go. Well, listen, what do rugby do well? Well, I tell you what, we do. We're a great, you know, we're a great family entertainment sport. We, we're a very welcoming sport, um, and actually, we've got teams that people care about and have come along and have a little look. Um, I do think just a final thing: ticket prices come into that quite quite big and I think uh, you know there's been a couple of examples I can go over the weekend of, of clubs you know charging quite a lot of money clearly they're trying to recoup their finances and what have you but I think you've got to be very careful you don't price people out of the game yeah you do and, and that's something I find quite interesting when you know, obviously because one of those examples that's been doing the rounds is is Bath Leicester uh, which you know the, the prices at the rate are looking incredibly high for that and you're right kind of you know recouping that and I suppose there will be there will be those games that that they sell out, and I suppose you you say that that money has to come in. But we all know that the 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 a the game is the audience is is aging and and struggling to kind of attract younger viewers in, and those things those things aren't going to help at all. I don't think so. I think I think rugby's got to be really really careful, and and in particular, you know, kind of chase, from the get go, chasing that football model of just trying to get bigger and bigger and thinking that the big the big wealth will come. Well. The wealth is there in France, where it's so well supported, and there's a massive TV deal. I don't think, you know, I don't think anywhere within within England, Wales, and, and Scotland can can compete with that at all. And I think there needs to be like a real reassessment of how much how much kind of goes into. I'm not saying the players don't deserve to be, you know, properly remunerated for it, but 
there's definitely been a degree of reckless spending on player wages that has that has led that's led to the situation that's the you know COVID then blew up massively after it. Yeah, I think I think it's it's a much bigger argument, isn't it? The whole thing is 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 how you how you make rugby pay is a is a, is a good uh, thesis, isn't it? I think if you probably do a three year university course and you'd mm. still be you'd have to stay on for the masters to get it finished, you know. Um, but uh, no, I think. Um, I think it does boil down. You know, you've got to get your pyramid at the at the bottom right. You know, and I think that's where certainly in England they've had a, they've had an issue. Um, they, they they haven't really got the you know that jump from school, university, uh, lower club rugby. If you're a good player, you've got to have a pipeline. And if you're not maybe at the right university, or if you got turned down for your local club academy because you weren't quite big enough when you were 16 and you were a late late developer, you know, it, it's just. They just don't, I don't know. I think there's a wastage, certainly um, talent-wise. I think there's a lot of improvements that uh, if I had a magic wand, I would I would make quite quickly. Yeah, I think it is important just keeping people in the game. Whether whether you're going to play elite rugby or you're going to have a, a knock around in the seconds or just go down the club and, and watch stuff that you know there, there has to be that that strong that strong grassroots element where, wherever you are for a game to thrive. Well, it's got to be fun. That's kind of, I come back yeah. to, I come back to that three letter word. It's got to be fun and it's got to be enjoyable. And, and it doesn't matter what level you're playing at. I, I you know, as I say, it, it sounds obvious and people can say, Oh, well, professional rugby, you've got to be serious. You've got to, you know, of course you have, of course, you, of course you've got to concentrate. Of course you, of course there's a lot on the line, but um, I thought, as, as I say, I thought Wales got it right during the world cup. Um, I thought they had a really good spirit going. I thought it was fun. I think they, I think they made the most of it. I th- I'd be surprised if you spoke to anybody from Wales who didn't enjoy their World Cup, give or take the last 50 minutes against uh, Argentina. Let's finish then just by talking about a couple of the other uh, Welsh characters who feature within the book. And I'm going to start with uh, with Jonathan Davis, the, the Jiffy variety, rather than the uh, um, the more recent uh, the more recent centre. Um, okay, a player I loved watching growing up, but my main memories of him were playing were playing rugby league and then coming back towards the end of uh, towards the end of his career but in terms of in that natural ability and then the the determination to go and and bulk up and and prove it in a in a different sport um really really is you know kind of a almost a once in a generation talent wasn't he Oh, I, I just wanted to reflect those times when I spoke to him and for this particular chapter, I spoke to Jiffy and I spoke to Jason Robinson. Um, one, one had gone north and the other had come, the other had come back down to Union. And, uh, and they both got unbelievable stories. You know, you, you would know them. I'm sure your listeners would know them pretty well. Uh, but I, I, I always remember the footage of uh, when Jonathan Davis goes up to Witness and he's signed on. It's January and I've never seen anybody looking so pale. I mean, Witness have got pretty white white shirt anyway but it, it just looked oh my god what have i what have i done and, and that's how he felt that he freely admitted that's how he felt and so as you say it was a amazing strength of character to, to to not just to knuckle down not just to make a success at witness but to go on and and uh and, and do so well down in the in australia and and, and then to come back you know and i, I think I, I i just love the i just love his passion and i love the way he tried to play i love the way that Back in back in the day, Neath, I love the little. The, he had his collar turned up. He was, he was just a little bit different. He was not frightened to be him, um, which I think is so important in rugby. I think there is a little bit of, if you're not careful, everything's a little bit sort of homogenized. Uh, you know, or the coach, ooh, he's not going to like it if I unless I do X and Y. You know, I, I think you again, if we're looking at rugby's next ten years, maybe there's a lesson there. Maybe you've got to give players their head. 
you've got to you've got to you know allow for people who are slightly different um, in your in your in your team and in your squad. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was a pleasure to talking talking to him, um, and and also yeah, uh, Jason Robinson as well, who's who's hasn't had his dues, I don't think particularly. Um, Compared to some of the other sides, yeah. uh, other players, sorry, in that two thousand three side, he's he's had an incredible. Um, he, I, I don't think I've ever seen somebody in the back three who could play like he could, sidestep as far as he could, uh, and and with his. And as he is the first to say, he's a bit like Jeffrey Boycott. He said, oh, "Do you know how many games I played? You know, and it's hundreds and hundreds of games. He knows, you know, he's got a pretty idea, a good idea of how many games he played." Well, overall, and how many tries he scored. So no, it was a, it was a pleasure again. That was one of the very lucky to to to, to talk to some of these guys and and um, you know get their stories. Yeah, fortunately, he was a lot more uh, a lot more entertaining than uh, than Jeffrey Boycott from an excitement point of view. Um, and then yeah, just to just to finish, Rob uh, Eddie Butler. You know, again, sadly, no longer with us, but uh, a guy who's a colleague uh, of yours for for a number of years. What are your what are your favorite uh, your favorite memories of of Eddie? Well, I, I, as as you say, I was lucky to sort of. I, I always sort of looked at him either as a sort of a bit older than me, but a sort of old, older brother type, you know, or a cousin or something. You know, he's far smarter than me, far better looking. Had a, you know, he just he spoke languages. He was just he, he just somebody you looked up to, uh, and and you know, I was lucky enough to get to know him, and we'd um, <laughs> we'd go on various various tours, and he, he sort of. He was had those sort of eyes, didn't he? It, was, you know, it must have been when he was playing for Pontypool. He, he, you know, there was there was a glit. There was a certain sort of. Oh, I wonder what it was. What's this bloke over here doing? And he, he would he would talk about the the, the tinkle of the tinkle of stud on bone, you know, from the days in Pontypool. Um, and he was, uh, you know, he was good fun. And his, his um, memorial service um, in, in Abergavenny was was a, was again a. a sort of honor to be there and and you know a lot of his old colleagues were there and it just it just it was a it's sort of the end piece of the book um if you like I just want I, I saw him as a as somebody who represented actually many of the the best things about rugby you know you, you it, it is a tough game we all know it's a it's a tough hard game but it's got to be fun and it but there is a sort of a, a soul and a and a poetry to it as well if you you know on certain occasions and he I think embodied that more than most yeah, I'm always impressed with people who work in rugby for a long period of time and don't become jaded by the, you know, by the the kind of the the day to day and the 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 fact that it is, you know, that it is a job. So I think it's, you know, that brings it back to um, to what a special sport that uh, that we have. So thanks so much for joining us, Rob. It's been fantastic. Uh, to, before you go, tell us uh, tell us the best way of getting hold of a copy. Well, it's called uh, Around the World in Eighty Minutes, um, and you'd find it. Uh, any good bookshop, I would say. Um, it's published by Bloomsbury and uh, it's available. I'd have thought Christmas movies coming up, isn't it? Almost. So, exactly. uh, yeah, it's, it's out there somewhere. Perfect time. Yeah, perfect time to get your hands on a copy ahead of uh, ahead of Christmas. So, uh, yeah, Rob Kitson, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks very much indeed. Podcast Network.